The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture reading today is from Galatians chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Ashley, for that. Galatians. So we're in chapter 3 now. We're making our way steadily through it. By the way, if you're wondering at home, or at home, if you're wondering how long are we going to be in this series in Galatians, uh, we'll be in this uh, up to Palm Sunday. Uh, So we'll go all the way to Palm Sunday, and that's when we'll finish the book of Galatians, and then we'll have a couple of, we'll have a Palm Sunday sermon and an Easter sermon, and then a new series after that. So we're making our way, and uh, what a book, man, what a book this is. In his essay, uh, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis makes this statement. He says, we are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. When we read today's text, one of the things that is right there on the surface for us is we can do the same uh, with religion. We can fool around with religion and make it into something that is much smaller than the gospel itself. And that's really what we're going to talk about uh, today. Today's passage is about preserving the authenticity of the true gospel and not exchanging it for a knockoff that has been emptied of its value. Uh, The last couple of Sundays, we've incorporated art into these sermons, and uh, I'm going to do it again. (laughs) I feel like I'm on a little bit of a roll uh, talking about art. Um, And so we're going to use this again. I want to show you a painting. Um, This is Rembrandt's, this is by Rembrandt. It's called The Storm on the Sea of Galilee. Um, What I wish I could do is print out a high-resolution good print of this and put it in all of your hands, Uh, but you can go do that, Um, Google. Uh, But this painting was painted in 1633 when Rembrandt was around 27 years old. So if you are not yet 27, set your sights. If you are after 27, you're you're good at other things. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Okay, this, this is a rare uh, seascape. Rembrandt didn't paint many seascapes, uh, but this is a rare, 
a rare copy, uh, a rare thing that he did. It's a beautiful painting. Um, you, you have the disciples kind of divided. Jesus is down there in the, in the stern. Uh, and half of the disciples are gathered around him and they're pleading with him to do something. The other half of the disciples are working on the boat, doing everything they can to make sure, to, to try to make the boat stay afloat. And then there's one uh, character in there. You, you can't really see him on the screen super well. He's in the blue robe, kind of right in the middle. He's got a beret on his head. And he's holding on to a rope. If you see a high resolution, he's holding on to a rope and he's looking directly at you. He's looking at the viewer. And that's actually Rembrandt. It's a self-portrait. He painted himself into this uh, painting. It's a, it's a masterpiece. This is a masterpiece. On March 19th of 1990, at about 1.24 a.m., at precisely 1.24 a.m., two men dressed as Boston police officers um, Press the buzzer on the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston's Fenway neighborhood, and they ask the security guards to buzz them in because there had been a report of a disturbance in the museum. And the guards complied, and soon they were bound and tied up with duct tape and put in the cellar of the museum as these two men dressed as cops made off with over $500 million worth of stolen art. It was almost 30 years ago. That art has not been seen since. It's in the wind. This painting was one of them. And it wasn't just stolen. This is about a four-foot-tall canvas. And what the thieves did in order to make off with this painting this size is they just took a box cutter and they cut it out of the frame. If you go to the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum today, on the wall hangs the frame. It's empty. It's haunting. Hadn't been seen since. A $5 million reward by the FBI has been posted and they haven't received a word. What I want to talk about today that pertains to this passage of Scripture, the authenticity of the gospel and preserving it, is to just ask the question, what do you do with stolen art? Say you steal this painting Okay, what next? What's the play? Right? eBay? Like, what are you going to do? It's a, worth, it's a worthy question to ask because we live in a time now where it's much more complicated than when this art heist happened. We live now in the era of social media, the internet, where you can find, you can post things. If something like this got stolen today, it's going to be in all of our social media feeds around the world, and, and we're going to all be looking out for it, and there's going to be no cover. But back when this happened, it, it was easier to steal art and then... Um, dispose of it and turn it into profit. So how? Um, that's what I want to talk about today because I think it factors into what this passage is, is getting at. Um, typically, stolen art meets one of four fates. The first fate is the person doesn't know what they stole. They realize after the fact that there's a lot of heat and a lot of pressure on them and they just destroy it. So they burn it. That's fate number one. Fate number two is the painting or the statue or the piece of art is held for ransom. So a ransom will be posted and a third party will, will turn it in for that, for that ransom. 
The fourth fate is that it's used as a black market currency. I'll talk about that in a minute. And then the fourth fate is that, and this is the one I want to focus on, is it will be sold as a high-quality replica of itself. So, uh, one investigator who works on art theft, uh, and he worked on the Gardner Museum heist, uh, he, he, he made this observation. He said, art th- it's not like you think. Art thieves are not like you think typically. You think of the Thomas Crown Affair when in fact it's a lot more like a Coen Brothers movie. Right? The, the, that art thieves are first and foremost thieves. And so they may not be super sophisticated in the world of art and they may be acting on somebody else's behalf in the caper. And so they'll take art and not really know exactly what they're doing, uh, what they're taking. So someone might steal a very famous painting, not know what they have, and then the pressure mounts, and they know that the, the, the law enforcement is closing in on them, and so they just, they just destroy it. They burn the evidence to get out from under in any way that they can. The second uh, is that some thieves will steal art, they'll wait for a ransom to be posted, they'll return the work for the ransom through a third party. That happens a fair amount. Uh, But this idea of art being used as currency for the black market, here's how that works. Uh, So suppose somebody drives off with a Monet, right? And the Monet is worth $10 million. Uh, That painting might be traded right away for about $1 million worth of cocaine, okay? And the cocaine dealer will then sit on the painting for about a year while the buzz around it dies down, and then he's going to trade the painting to an arms dealer for a cache of weapons for his drug cartel. And then another year is going to pass, and that arms dealer is going to take that Monet, and he's going to uh, trade it to a weapons supplier who knows uh, more about the black market art world. And what's happened is over the course of time, the painting has been off the grid for a while, and it's been laundered so that it's not in the hands of anybody who had anything to do with its theft. And so this is how, when you read stories of paintings showing up in attics and in rummage sales and people discover, there was a recent, recently they discovered a a klimt, I think it was, um, that had been stolen and was kind of hidden in plain sight. Um, This is how that works, is that it'll get removed and and it'll it'll just change hands uh, without a dollar exchanging hands. And so the black market, they launder the painting. The memory of its theft is, is, is diluted to a point where it can begin to appear now in unscrupulous back market art deals and it'll hang on somebody's wall in a private collection for a long time. And then they'll sell it to somebody else's private collection. And then eventually it's going to make it onto the open market and it's going to be discovered in an attic or in an estate sale. So that's how that works. This is fascinating to me. I'm, I'm giving you this because it's fascinating to me and who doesn't want to lean into art theft. Um, <laughs> but if those pieces from the Gardner Art Museum haven't been destroyed or held for ransom or passed around like a briefcase full of cash, then they likely have fallen into one other grim scenario, and this is the one that is the emphasis for us. They've been sold as a high-quality replica of themselves. So how does that work? Well, say, for example, a thief steals a lesser-known Rembrandt. Rembrandt painted a lot of paintings, right? 
He, what, what happened with Rembrandt? Rembrandt was regarded as a master. He was a master. And what happened is, is art students would come and they would study with Rembrandt in Rembrandt's studio. And what they would do is they would try to imitate him. And they would try to copy him. And it was, and it was on purpose with his blessing. And so they would make all these, these young painters would study under Rembrandt and they would emulate and they would copy and they would use the same supplies that he's making in his studio and they would copy the master himself and they would mimic and they'd mimic his technique, his style and these protégés would become so skilled in the art of imitation that historians still will look at a painting that's attributed to Rembrandt and wonder about the authenticity of it. There's a German art historian, uh, Wilhelm von Bode, who, who, who said this. He said, Rembrandt painted 700 pictures, and of these, 3,000 still exist. <laughs> so what happens is a savvy con man with a gullible target can convince his potential buyer that the painting he has to sell came from one of Rembrandt's students. Now, it wouldn't happen with the storm on the Sea of Galilee because this is too famous. But he would, he would say, you know, I have something to sell that is, that is from one of Rembrandt's students. And all he needs to do to make the case is to turn to the painting itself, right? And so he'll say, look at the detail. This detail is clearly done by somebody who was copying Rembrandt's exact style. This detail required unobstructed access to the original. See how the light falls on the woman's nose. See how, how the tassels on the shoulders are just like the way Rembrandt painted them. You could even say, take a sample of the paint and you will find that it is 17th century Dutch in origin. It might have sat on one of Rembrandt's own easels. And so now you've got this painting that it's the person who's buying it is being told it's not a Rembrandt, even though it is. But they're saying it's incredibly valuable because of what it's connected to. And so this painting that could be worth ten that could be worth a hundred million dollars, well, you could still sell it to somebody for hundred thousand dollars, two hundred thousand dollars. And they would go home thinking that they are in possession of an original. 17th century Dutch painting done by a student of the greatest painter that ever lived and hanging in their home with great pride and great joy and marvel at the deal that they got. Here's what's so insidious about that. That painting, rather than being destroyed, Rather than being reduced to ash, the thief burns it from our collective memory. Rather than holding it for ransom worthy of its pedigree, it endures the indignity of being sold for a pittance. The thief removes the painting from circulation and he banishes it to a fate worse than fire and that is a life of obscurity where it continues to exist in the world but in a world that will never know what it is. Its new owner doesn't even know what it is. And the seller is praying that he never finds out. Today's passage is about something worse than that. It's about something worse than passing off the masterpiece of the gospel as a knockoff of the truth. What instead, it's about telling people who know full well that they have been offered a genuine Rembrandt at no charge 
to purchase a knockoff instead. And then the people are considering the offer. And so Paul says, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? They know the gospel. They know what Christ has done for them. They know about his cross. They know about the resurrection. They know about the power of the living Christ at work in the world, transforming their lives and the lives of people around them. This was the faith that they came into. And Paul is asking the question, are you going to abandon that for a cheap facsimile? No matter how long you've walked with Christ as a follower of the gospel, as a follower of Jesus, we never leave the gospel behind. We never graduate from it to something else. The work of Christ not only justifies us before God, we talked about that last week, but it also sanctifies us throughout the course of our life and then brings us home into glory. That's the heart of this passage, is that these people in Galatia are under the impression that though the grace of Christ is needed to draw us to God, once we've believed, it's then up to us to keep that faith alive. This is the knockoff, right? Instead of believing in the finished work of Christ in an ongoing, continuous way, you believe that Christ gets you in the door, but then you believe in yourself. Then you believe in yourself. It's the knockoff of the gospel, believing in ourselves instead of him, trusting in our efforts instead of his grace and his, and his sacrifice on our behalf. What's so attractive about doing that? Why would people be in, enticed to even begin to do that? To say, I'm being given a free masterpiece and instead I want to actually pay for the rest of my life for this cheap knockoff. What, what would be so appealing about that? You ever thought about that? Why is this even a problem? Because... A gospel of believing in ourself and our effort, we feel like, well, there's something I can control there. There's something I can control there. I can, I can make things look a certain way. I can create appearances. I can look really good. And we think, I can afford that. I can afford that. I can, I can make my way. I can measure up. I can bear the consequences. I can determine my own worth in the eyes of others. Isn't this the way that oftentimes the lesser version is appealing because it's the one we think we can afford? There's a painter I love right now named Mark Maggiore who paints Western paintings. And I could never afford one of his originals. And every once in a while he sells these short runs of prints and they're like $250, and I think, man, I'd like to get one. I haven't pulled the trigger on doing that. But my thinking is, I'm not even thinking about, could I have an original? I'm thinking, I could maybe afford a print. We do that. We do that with the gospel. We say, I know there's this good news that's been given to me, but I want a lesser version that I have some control over. I, I don't have to look weak in this scenario. Instead, I can look strong, and I can look polished. The lesser version is the one we think we can afford. But we've been offered a holiday at the sea. We've been offered the original, and for free. So the big question this passage is putting before us is, what is the object of your faith really? Because faith has an object, that thing that you believe in, the thing that you're trusting in. In talking about the relationship between our present justification and our ongoing sanctification, Paul tethers his argument 
to a key figure from the ancient past, Abraham. Abraham is all over the book of Galatians. We're going to talk about him more as we go. But Paul is tethering the gospel to this Old Testament figure. Why is he doing that? It's a brilliant argument. What Paul is basically saying is he's undercutting the false idea that we still have, that though initially Jesus saves us, it becomes up to us to keep that faith intact. And he undercuts that argument, how? By reminding us, listen, your faith, the faith that you cling to, the faith that you hold on to, it didn't start the day you first believed. Christianity wasn't born the day you had a eureka moment and you said Jesus died for my sins. That's amazing, right? We're stepping into a faith that has been going on for a while. And it works a certain way independently of us. Our faith didn't begin the day that we first embraced the gospel. The Christian's faith didn't begin the day they first believed. For Westerners, for us, it goes back to the other side of the world. It was developed and first delivered in a language that's not our native tongue to a people who would have looked and lived and thought differently than most of us do. You know, just because you climb aboard a train doesn't mean you own the train, and it doesn't mean you invented the train, right? Faith has been underway. Why would we think that this ongoing faith is then ours to preserve? After all God has done to accomplish this without us. He's the one who's at work. Our faith is rooted. It's rooted in history. And it rests in the news of a real Christ crucified. A real historical event. And the Galatians believed this. They believed that he rose again. That he sent his spirit to dwell in the hearts of his people This was the gospel they heard. This was the gospel they experienced. This was the Holy Spirit that they received. But now they're abandoning all of that. For what? For works of the law and for efforts of the flesh. They're abandoning that for faith now in themselves. And Paul says, you're bewitched. Who's bewitched you? You're being fools. They're laying down cash for a forgery when the masterpiece is offered for free. All faith has an object, the thing that that faith trusts in. For the believer, our faith must be in God and what God is doing. He must be the object of our faith if we're to follow him well. Faith is not just trusting in God with no regard for his character. It's trusting that God is good. And because he is good, he is committed to bringing us into conformity to his holiness and that he delights to do this. He delights to sanctify us. One of our key values here at Christ Presbyterian Church is that we would be people who are connected to one another by faith. That we'd be a community rooted in the gospel following Christ in his mission of loving people, places, and things to life, right? You've heard me say that. We talk about that all the time. And when we are trusting in our own good works to sustain us, the sort of community that we prize and desire is impossible. And the reason it's impossible is because I will never be able to be honest with you about my struggle if I believe that it's up to me to display to you the effectiveness of my own personal faith through my good works. I'll never be able to be honest about my struggle. Borrowing from from last week's discussion about Van Gogh, we won't be willing to let our wounded side show. 
And not only will we guard ourselves from being known, but it will also develop a critical heart toward other people because it'll all be about where we fit, where we rank, how we compare. And so we'll have no empathy for fellow strugglers because we will view them as spiritual competition. And the goal will not be to see their need and respond, but to try to appear better than them and find our rank. Buying the forgery is tempting because we think we could never afford the real deal. We believe we're out of that league, that such fortune should never befall somebody like us. The knockoff, though, is going to drain you. It's going to drain your resources. It's going to exhaust your heart. Jesus gets me in the door, but now it's up to me to stay in the room. This passage from Galatians is saying, don't do that. Don't do that with the gospel. The truth is the original is the only one you can't afford. Because it's free. And it's offered freely. The false gospel where you earn God's favor through your effort, it actually has no value at all. It isn't based in anything real. And so imagine Paul hearing that the Galatians are embracing this belief that they need to maintain their salvation through their works. They've made themselves the true object of their faith. And they've tried to move on from the gospel instead of stay in it. And not only does this doom them as a faith community, because they'll never be honest, but it undermines the truth and the wonder of the gospel itself. Here's the truth. If you believe that Christ has atoned for your sins through his sacrifice, you will never, never be responsible for saving yourself. You'll never be responsible for that. And on top of that, you'll always have the Holy Spirit working in you to make you more and more into the likeness of Christ. So think about the forgeries that you desire because it's something you think you can afford and manage. And know that the call of the gospel is to rest, rest easy. Rest easy in knowing that the original, the masterpiece, the good stuff is given to you and it's the only thing you can afford because it's free, but it's everything you need. You are an heir to the collection of grace. So become a connoisseur. Pray with me. Father, I thank you for books like Galatians, letters like Galatians in the New Testament where Paul speaks to us your Holy Spirit speaks to us through a context in which the Apostle Paul is speaking to a church that was struggling with something that we continue to struggle with. And that is believing that even though we're trusting in Christ to initially save us, that we believe that the rest of the spiritual journey really is on our shoulders. Um, Lord, it prevents us from growing spiritually, ironically. Uh, and instead makes us frauds. It makes us... Uh, 
embrace a, a, a facsimile of the truth. It has some overlap in some places, but at its heart is not the real thing. And so, Lord, give us a sense of, of, of where we do that in our own lives. Uh, thank you for, your, for, for, for the gift of Christ, uh, whose birth we celebrate during Advent. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.